Welcome to the Possibility Podcast. I'm Mel Schwartz, your host and thought provocateur. I've been practicing psychotherapy for well over 20 years. During that time, I've been so fortunate to witness countless breakthroughs while working with people, whether one-on-one, as a speaker, in professional trainings, or in workshops. The insights that I've garnered have inspired me to write over a hundred articles and several books, including the companion title to this podcast, The Possibility Principle, which you can find wherever books are sold. On this and every episode, I'll be introducing new ways of thinking, relating, and communicating to help you truly thrive in your life, to reach the possibilities that you may long for. Think of this as a new game plan for living. Thanks for enjoying my emerging community of possibility seekers, and I hope you enjoy the show. So welcome everyone to New Books in Psychology. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, and today I'm very excited to be talking with Mel Schwartz about his book, The Possibility Principle, How Quantum Physics Can Improve the Way You Think, Live, and Love. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Pleasure to be joining you this morning. So I'd like to have you start us off by telling us just a little bit about yourself and how you came to write the book, how you became interested in quantum physics, and uh, give us a little background. I I believe in the concept of defining moments. You know, we all have insights, and some of them may be profound, but we don't treat the insight with respect. It fades. I've been fortunate that a number of times in my life I've had insights, and I thought they were so profound that I paused and I said, wow, my life is different in this moment because of this. It's a defining moment. And so by your asking that question of me, Elizabeth, I think of a particular defining moment that set me down this path. Um, I was in my early 40s. I had recently divorced two young children who really were living with me But on this particular weekend, they were visiting their mom. And I woke up on a beautiful Saturday morning, free, didn't have the responsibility of parenting, and I went out for a bike ride. Beautiful spring day. In the middle of that bike ride, I had what I will now call a panic attack. Anxiety overwhelmed me. It was fears were coming up through my thoughts about my future, financially, parenting, relationship-wise, brand new chapter of life. So I headed back to my house, not knowing what relief that would give me. When I got into the house, I pulled a book off the shelf called The Turning Point by Fridtjof Capra, a quantum physicist. I started to read about what he was then calling the paradigm shift. Our sense of reality was shifting due to insights from quantum physics in the 19... 20s and 30s. And within reading a few pages, I noticed I was not only no longer anxious, I was feeling enthralled. I was reading about reality being this perpetual state of possibility and potential. And it was so inspiring. I've never stopped that reading. 
I've never stopped that learning. I stopped and paused and thought after a while, if understanding these principles of quantum physics, and I'm going to just summarize this in a very brief way. Quantum reality tells us, dissimilar to what we have been taught, that reality is uncertain. And although we spend our lives warding off uncertainty, which I've come to see creates anxiety, that if we embrace uncertainty, it equals possibilities. And don't we want that in our lives? Um, so embracing uncertainty and welcoming possibility was the key. The other principle is that reality is not objective, as we were taught. And objectivity requires that I'm standing apart, separate and distinct from you and everything else, which gets in the way of compassion, empathy, intuition, connections. And so I started to embrace this new reality of subjectivity, um, not as being marginal or less than the objectivity, but being profoundly helpful. So I started to make changes in my life based upon these principles. I began to integrate them into my practice as a psychotherapist, which was just beginning at that point in time. Um, this is 26, 27 years ago. And I began to see the results in my therapy practice, which is very non-traditional in my approach. And so for years, people were saying to me, you have to write a book about all of this. But it was so hard to wrap my head around how would I do it? Um, but it was a work of great passion. It took me many years. And with a sense of relief and, and, and proudness and pride, I accomplished it. And the book is essentially about when we shift our thinking and embrace the things that we typically resist, how our relationship with ourself and with others can enlighten, um, lift, and soar and create a human experience that we don't have when we think of ourselves as being little bits of machine in a machine-like universe, which is 17th century thinking coming to us from Newton and Descartes. So that's a, a long-winded response to who am I and how did I come to this approach? So I'm curious when you said it took you a while to wrap your head around, how am I going to do this? I'm curious about that because, you know, of course, anything's possible. And so I'm wondering if you had thoughts that were kind of getting in the way, the way, you know, we all do. Certainly. So I'll, I'll tell you what my experience was. I had a uh, column, a newspaper column in a local paper. My practice pre-COVID was in Westport, Connecticut. And I'd write an article once a month. It was called A Shift of Mind, the name of my column. And over the years, I had 100 articles written. And so the suggestion was, why don't I thread those articles together and turn them into a book, which is a ruinous way of writing a book. It's kind of backward. So there were times in the process where I was trying to create a symmetry and a flow where I thought, I don't know how to do this which allowed me to see my thought. I don't know how to do this. Or another thought, how will this ever work? And I began to understand how thought was constructing my reality. And I'd see that thought and say, I choose not to become that thought. 
because that thought is going to stymie me, which is how I came to understand the process of thinking as opposed to being mired in the thought. So my thinking would come, Elizabeth, from seeing the thought and saying, that thought isn't going to serve me. So it allowed me to quiet myself and calm myself and introduce new thinking, which is, I can do this. I'm not sure how, but again, I would embrace the uncertainty as quantum uncertainty. By embracing the uncertainty, just trusting it will all work out step by step. And it did. Yeah, I think that's one of the most difficult things to deal with with people in therapy is the automatic negative thoughts they have, the, the ways that they'll say, I can't do that, or mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm doing, or that's, that, or like you talk about in the book, that's too hard. Yes, so, so when that happens and I propose a, a new approach or a new way of thinking and, and the response is, that's hard to do. And then I'll say, well, that's a thought you just had. How do you know it's hard to do? Have you ever tried what I'm proposing? No. That you said it's hard to do, like a statement of fact. So you're having a thought that's telling you it's hard to do. You see, that's why we struggle with change, because our thought tricks us in that it's telling us the truth. We don't know it's hard to do. You've never tried it. It's thought defending its territory. Right. Just, just our resistance to change in general. You know, you, so you address that too, how sometimes we even cling to something familiar that's painful or difficult rather than change. So change requires accepting, if not embracing uncertainty. So I come across this often. Um, I, I gave a TEDx talk on breaking free from anxiety. Uh, My thesis is that anxiety and fear generally are due to our avoidance of uncertainty. We need to know the future, which is unknowable. And if we need to know it, it creates fear. So an anecdote I share in that talk and in the book is, I was working with a woman who was very unhappily married, Um, middle-aged, She and her husband tried marital counseling, didn't work. They had no interest in common. They didn't benefit each other's lives. They had no children, and the good news is that they were financially independent. So I asked her curiously, why are you staying married? And her answer was, I don't know who I would be as a divorced woman. So there it was. The fear, the identity fear of who would I be which would resist change was her default. Yet her day-to-day reality in her known certainty is she was altogether unhappy, but she was struggling to release unhappiness out of the fear and apprehension of who would I be. So I created an exercise for her, which helped. I had her imagine stepping into a river and imagining the river as the flow of life, of her life. And I said, close your eyes and visualize getting into the river and going with the stream. And I let a few moments pass and asked her, well, where did she see herself? She said, I got into the river and into the flow, but I grabbed a hold of a boulder in the middle, Mel. And I said, why? And she said, well, the river bends to the right up your head. I can't see where I'm going. 
I said, you're not supposed to see. That's why we call it the future. Let go of the boulder and go with the flow. Now, going with flow doesn't mean you're hapless. You can still navigate where you're going, but you have to get in the flow. For her, the bend around the corner of the river was representative of who would I be if I were divorced. She couldn't see it, but she was afraid of becoming it. So we get stuck in the state of being instead of embracing what I call the flow of becoming. See, if we join in this becoming, we're not rooted in being. I wrote an article many years ago called, Who Am I? Which to my astonishment was read by incredible numbers of people because they Googled the question, who am I? And I propose who am I is the wrong question because that suggests that there's a fixed, specific, inert answer. Inert, not changing. So instead of who am I, we might ask ourselves, how would I like to experience my life? See, that's flowing, that's becoming, that's a state of movement instead of this fixed inert piece where I'm resisting change. So it's our whole paradigm and belief system around change and uncertainty that anchors us and victimizes us as humans. Yeah, and you've got me thinking about the way we educate kids because there is this idea that, you know, we, we can predict, we can calculate and make assessments. And in, in, even in school, the way you're tested for your knowledge, it's like, it's either right or wrong. And, you know, like in reading the book, I was thinking, gosh, there's probably a lot of possibility in how we could change the curriculum so I just started wondering, do you, did you ever think about that? Like, I, You know, I think I referenced it in the book, and if I didn't, it is part of what I teach. Imagine this. Imagine a classroom in which you're not graded or rewarded for getting the right answer. Teacher asks a question. If you think you know the answer, you raise your hand, they call on you, and yes, you got it right. There's not a lot of learning that way. Imagine a classroom in which we were rewarded or graded for asking the best questions. The students asking the best question. And great questions don't have ready, quick, easy answers. So creating great questions stimulates intellectual curiosity. It's not rote and reductive as to what's the right answer. Questions are far more important than answers because a question focuses where our attention goes, right? Whereas an answer ends the inquiry. It's done. It's finished. So in an educational system, which is not just about retaining bits of data and information, but a system that opens to inquiry and values questions and doesn't have quick answers, that's alive and generative. We could have an entirely different kind of culture if we reconsidered how education works. Yeah, listening to you, I'm thinking of the work of John Kabat-Zinn and his idea that you know, we would all do well to embrace a beginner's mind where you know we're asking questions and we're learning and we're just you know get versus the expert mind where you know when he talks about once you reach this expertise level 
you no longer see all the possibilities. Emptying our mind and asking questions like, well, how do we know that to be true? Or what do we mean by true? You know, in, in my working with couples, the argument about truth, about the battle over right or wrong, is at the core of our problems and our conflict. So this notion of right or wrong, just that concept, um, was given to us by Aristotle. It's called Aristotelian thinking. It's called either or thinking. Something is or it isn't. When I am asked an either or question, I can't answer because I've trained my mind to resist falling into these false categories. So at any rate, in couples work using a quantum approach, um, I point to the fact that if there is no objective reality, which quantum physics reveals, then it's foolish to argue over right or wrong. Facts don't change feelings. We need to talk with each other subjectively through feelings and share, this is how I feel. Do you care how I feel? Now that is a profoundly important question. It ends all arguments. Do you care how I feel? So if it's a close or loving relationship and I say I love you, then I should care how you feel. So instead of arguing objective facts, talk about how I feel and ask, do you care how I feel? That provokes empathy and compassion and harmony. We need to get out of the battle over right or wrong. Now, I'm not suggesting that there aren't wrong things. You shouldn't drink too much and get in car and drive. You know, we shouldn't be physically or verbally abusive to each other. But the nuances and qualities of relationship are about expressing our subjective perspectives and feelings and we can validate each other even if we don't agree. I can care how you feel. I may not understand or agree with your perception, but I care how you feel. That altogether shifts how we go after relationship and communication, getting past right or wrong. Do you, have you ever experienced a couple where they're both stuck on, don't you care how I feel? So the one puts it out there and goes, don't you care how I feel? And then he goes, well, I'm trying to tell you how I feel. Don't you care how I feel? Yes, of course. So I created um, a technique, which I just arbitrarily call the 5% rule, which is this. Our instinct when we're in a disagreement is to refute and disprove and repudiate everything we hear that's wrong. But I thought, there's a small percentage of what we hear that we might agree with. So arbitrarily, I called it 5%. And what I advise couples to do and individuals, find the small percentage of what you might validate or agree with. Take the 95% you disagree with and just temporarily suspend it. Put it up on the shelf for the moment. Find some small piece that you can agree with or at least validate and do that. Now, when you do that, the other person now feels surprisingly heard and understood. Now, if you've done that for them, they're opening to listening and hearing what you have to say. So it's kind of like setting the stage for effective listening and communicating 
if I have something important to share and I think the other person is going to be reactive, I pause and think about how I can deliver it so they can take it in. Otherwise, our words are like a ping pong ball flying back and forth. and We end up more frustrated than we began. But the problem is no one taught us how to communicate effectively. Imagine going back to education. If we were taught communication, emotional intelligence, verbal intimacy, if we were taught this in school, what a different world we'd be living in. Absolutely. Because what you just talked about with couples also applies, I find, with parents and their children. Often a child wants to tell the parents, I had a terrible day at school, the teacher was so mean to me. And the parent's response is, you have one of the nicest teachers in the whole school. And the poor kid is just straight out of their mind. Can't, you know, like, I, you're not listening to me. I can't. And so I, I think that's a very helpful approach with, with working with parents too. Like, can you just, can you at least accept some of what your child is saying, even if you don't agree? And so I'm just fascinated by why we, you know, again, like, and, and I think you explain it. We, we just go back to the way we see how we develop a worldview. That worldview of an objective reality, which and then ethically would suggest that there is a right and a wrong. Right? Now, we live in this horrific time of fake news. Now, I'm not advocating that there aren't agreed upon truths that we can, should reach consensually. This is different than fake news and conjuring up make-believe stuff. What I'm saying is that in the course of human relations, as human beings, we are not machines. And we have differing perspectives and histories and fears and wants and desires. And to embrace each other as human beings, we need to communicate differently. I've learned I'll share the story about how I came to this. Many years ago, I was giving a talk on the change process. And I was taking questions. And a gentleman in the audience um, raised his hand. You could tell from the tone of his voice that he was not buying what I was offering. He didn't think people changed. So I asked him, and he agreed. People don't change. I noticed my instinct. My instinct in that moment was to prove to him why he was wrong. But I paused and I embraced some uncertainty. And out of that uncertainty, a new question came to me. I asked him, you don't think people change, correct? He said, that's right. My new question was, how did you come to that belief? See, what I did is I took a fact, I turned it to a belief. So he shared about his childhood and family of origin. and said, well, that makes complete sense why you'd have that belief. Now, if you had been my sibling and raised in my family, could you see that you'd have a different belief? He said, yes. And I realized we could have a meaningful dialogue by sharing different beliefs and perspectives, getting past right or wrong. And that's the way to change people's minds. You know, I did, I did a podcast on this recently, How to Change People's Minds, which is never argue facts. Open up to sharing beliefs. And how did you come to your belief? 
You came to your belief because it's what your parents said or it's what your life experiences indicated. So our beliefs can change. We're operating from a game plan that denies us the possibilities and the benefits of being human as opposed to being machine-like. Objectivity has its place in machinery, not in human perception. I was serving, um, I was called as a prospective juror for jury duty years ago. The story is in the book. I was gonna ask you to tell that. <laughs> yes, so I, it's an alleged drunk driving case and I am a prospective juror on the witness stand and the prosecutor says, uh, Mr. Schwartz, um, can you be objective? <laughs> Wrong question to ask me. So I went into a little dissertation about no and no one can and why it's the wrong question to ask. So the judge was very curious. Luckily. He was curious and he said, well, Mr. Schwartz, what question should we ask? I said, could you be in touch with your bias and still feel you can do a fair job? That's what we should ask jurors. We shouldn't defend against being biased. There is no such thing. So I asked the judge, judge, do you have beliefs? He said, well, of course I have beliefs. I said, well, judge, isn't a belief a bias? Of course. So what human being doesn't have beliefs? We are biased and we should not be defensive. The best thing we can do is tune into our bias, see how it impacts us and either accept it or rethink it. That's dynamic and that's accountable. Hiding behind the lens of objectivity is absurd. It doesn't work and it doesn't serve us. So for listeners, can you tell them, because the judge said to you, what question should I ask you? Yes. Uh, you tell you mean, what was the outcome of that conversation? He, I think the judge then said to you, well, what should I be asking you then? So he said, so what should I ask? And I said, I said what you should ask, Judge, is can I be in touch with my bias and still feel I can do a good job as a juror? Now, in that case, what are my biases against alcoholism, against drunk driving, against this man, individual being a man, how he, what he's wearing? Get in touch with your bias. Freeze us from being blinded by the bias. So what about therapy? in terms of how therapy can help people get in touch with their biases. Because um, the, this idea of making these, the, the shift or, or pausing and becoming more aware of your a thought in the moment, also letting it go sometimes does require figuring out where the belief came from, right? So I, I work toward identifying old thought which is old recurring thought. And when we have an old recurring thought, which is 99% of the time, that thought instantly summons the accompanying emotion, which tends to be old. So it's really old thought and old felt, which is why we struggle with change. Now, the goal is not to judge the thought, but to witness it and see it. In quantum physics, we're told that in the nanosecond that we're in, Everything's in a pure state of potential and possibility. So my thought, or my thinking was, the same is true for us. We exist in a state of pure potential. But if we keep having the same old thoughts, we never access that potential. So I had, uh, 
an insight and a question I asked myself at that time, which is, if I could see my thought and give myself just another nanosecond before becoming that thought, could I access that state of potential or possibility? The space between the thoughts creates my state of possibility, which is where new thinking or insight arises. So that's what I try to access. In that anecdote about the talk I gave on change process, my instinct, my old thought clamoring for attention was to prove him wrong. But I quieted that thought, I created the space that allowed that new question to arise, how did you come to your belief? See, that growth, that insight only came because I quieted myself. I embraced uncertainty. Rather than defaulting for fear around what will I say, what will people think, you have to quiet those instincts. By the way, when we take that extra nanosecond, no one notices. It's our own quiet space. Another question I had for you, because you talk about this a lot, about pausing and about finding that space, you use language that overlaps a little bit with mindfulness and meditation. So I was just curious if you practice meditation or if you've been influenced by anybody in that field. So with with some feelings that come up for me as I acknowledge this, I don't practice any known or traditional meditations. Um, I do find my approach meditative in that I can see my thought and quiet myself, not become the thought. But I think that where I veer off in a differing way is not to just free my mind of thoughts but to catalyze new thinking because that is energizing for me. There's nothing more exciting to me than the stimulation of something new, that insight, that defining moment. So my practice is not to create space, but to create space is a temporary space between thoughts so I can invite in the excitement and stimulation of new thinking. So the answer is I don't practice traditional med meditation, although I often encourage and recommend it for the people I work with um, on any number of ways. Um, but my process is, is it's a bit different. I'm a, I'm a bit of a radical. And you know, I learned as a young man that the word radical should not be seen as negative. Radical comes from the Greek word radix, which means root. And for me, that meant I don't deal on the level of symptoms. I try to get underneath the symptoms. And so I've always been drawn to radical thinking and radical approaches, which doesn't mean I'm an anarchist or I'm in favor of violence, but to get underneath the symptomatic levels that we work on because then we end up spinning wheels and chasing our tail. For instance, at any given moment in time, before COVID, one out of four Americans would be experiencing anxiety, clinical anxiety. Typically, we medicate it or try to manage it. I ask a different question. 
why are we experiencing an epidemic of anxiety and an epidemic of depression? Rather than treat the symptom, I step back and say, there's something wrong with the game plan of how we're living and how we're thinking that we have an epidemic of this occurring. That allows me new thinking so I can help people overcome and transcend this rather than simply treat it. It's the way we operate, the system at the large, at large that is dysfunctioning. So that as a result, humans dysfunction. That's a terrible word to use, dysfunction. Machines can dysfunction. We're human beings. It's even in our language, like couples will say, can you repair our marriage? Can we repair it? No. Repairing's for a machine. And we don't have loose screws. And we're not hardwired, folks, because we're not machines. We have to listen to these words to see the destruction of buying in to the 17th century paradigm of a machine-like universe that makes us machines or cogs in the machine, which by the way, would be depressing. That's why we have depression. The loss of wonder and curiosity in our culture is so profound, has horrible impact on children and on us. I've never met anyone who has wonder and curiosity who suffers from depression. As a culture, we no longer value wonder. Going back to children, when I was a kid, there was downtime, playtime, wonder. We have stolen that from children and then turn around and say children are suffering epidemic proportions of anxiety and depression. No kidding. How could it be otherwise? It's really unintentional child abuse that's occurring. So for all of us, Pulling back and not operating in a rational, machine-like manner, but bringing values of wonder and awe and curiosity and play and imagination back into our lives is key to human vitality. Yeah, I'm just thinking that for a lot of us I think maybe we stopped asking questions or we didn't wonder as much anymore because another thing that I think came from our education or from how we're socialized in the United States, in any case, is this idea that we're, we grow up and we're finished and that, you know, like you, you get your education and then your knowledge is sort of fixed. You know, you don't need to keep learning or, or you don't grow past age 18 and, and, it really is only more recently, I don't know how many years back it goes, but that, we, that they actually have been able to show that the brain is so much more plastic than we thought, that we do have the capacity to continue to create new neuronal pathways and, and things like that. Um, does, does sort of that new information about brain plasticity affect your work? Very much. Neuroplasticity is that the brain is not fixed or fungible. Exercise increases the brain's plasticity so much. But I think we need to rethink what we call the mind-body connection. The first thing is I will announce that there is no mind-body connection because there's no mind-body separation. So the word connection is a misnomer. 
Why would we think mind and body are separate? Now, I think an, an, another belief that most traditional thinkers have is that the brain produces our thoughts. This is an old way of thinking. Here's how I would describe it. Picture yourself walking at the beach and look behind you and see your footprint in the sand. You wouldn't think the sand produced your footprint. That would be silly. Your foot left its impression on the sand. Now, neuroscience is now confirming that it's our thoughts and feelings that leave their mark on the brain. So again, we're not hardwired. If you change your thoughts, which allows you to change your feeling, then your brain chemistry alters. We're not the victim of brain chemistry. Our brain chemistry is impacted and influenced by the quality of our thoughts and the accompanying feelings. So once we learn to free ourselves from negative injurious thought, our brain chemistry alters. That then speaks to a differing neuroplasticity. At the extreme, our brain, the quality and experience of our brain, is just an organ, a conduit, through which we message cognitively. But don't think of yourself at the mercy of this thing called brain. It's not how it works. Consciousness is primary, not biology. At least that's the way it appears to be. So if the thoughts are leaving imprints on the brain, you know, and our feelings and thoughts are related, what about relationships? And then like the, the quality of your relationships. So if you're caught up in, with, in a relationship with someone that has a hard time validating or acknowledging your feelings, then you would potentially have a lot of negative thoughts about the relationship, about your ability to communicate. So you follow me? What about relationships and how they affect? So there is no separation in the universe. Quantum physics reveals that. That's why there's no objectivity because there's no separation. Everything is inseparable as one. And nowhere would that be more true than in a close relationship. Now, I'm not suggesting that two people still don't have their own individuality, but their individual self is impacted and influenced by the relationship at large. So if you're in a relationship with someone who invalidates you frequently, if that's the norm, what can you do? How should you address that? Well, rather than being angry, I would advocate communicating, number one, how you feel which is, I typically feel that you're disagreeing with me, arguing with me, and not caring how I feel. And that doesn't make me feel good. Do you care how I feel? Now, expressing that may not change the other person, creates an opportunity. But expressing it means that you're going to validate and value yourself. See, some people resort to, the thought of what's the use, they're not going to listen, they're not going to care, and they don't express their feeling. That's harmful. Because not expressing yourself limits and constrains your relationship with yourself. So even if you think the other person won't listen, 
you should still articulate how you feel. And remember the question, do you care how I feel? Is very important. But there's an entire dynamic to communication that can help the other person listen to you. I call it prefacing. If you're expecting that they're gonna be reactive or reject what you have to say, come at it differently. Instead of just going right into the statement, say, you know, there's something I've been thinking that I wanna share with you, but I'm hesitating. I, I, I don't know if I should share it with you. I'm afraid you're gonna get upset or reactive. If you do that, the odds are the other person will say, no, I wanna hear what you have to say, please. Now that you've just now lessened or mitigated their tendency to be reactive. It only takes a couple of sentences to quiet someone's reactivity, our own or someone else's. So it's kind of like foaming the runway, so to speak. If the plane's coming in, you think it's gonna crash, you put foam on the runway. If you think that this conversation is not gonna go well, preface it by sharing your vulnerability your hesitation, you get their buy-in that they want to hear it, then the likelihood is they won't be as reactive. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, a funny thing too that comes up sometimes in therapy is someone will be processing with me in a session something that happened last year or five years ago, and they'll bring up that this thought, this idea, it's too late now. You know, it's been too long. Oh, yes. And so what you were just saying makes me think of sometimes I'll say to them, well, you could bring it up maybe by saying, I know this happened a long time ago, or this might be weird that I'm still thinking about this. I like to say, um, I, I made up my own little cognitive distortion, like we think there's an expiration date for how long you can talk. And, and by the way, so often, Elizabeth, that might be something that happened yesterday. And you see, I think what's happening there is thought is creating an excuse so that you don't have to find your voice. Because there's no rational reason why you couldn't bring up something from yesterday or last year. You know, I've been, I'm still thinking about this. I'm still feeling this. May, may I share with you what's coming up? All right. So yes, it, it, it's that built-in excuse. But by the way, in terms of what we share and don't share, we often worry about the consequences of what we say or do. We don't concern ourselves with the consequences of what goes unsaid. When I work with couples, I also see them individually. And on any occasion, individually, where someone has something positive or favorable to say about their partner, and I'll ask, that's great, did you share that with them? They'll say no. I can't think of once when they said yes. So I thought, look at the energy of relationship. We're comfortable sharing our criticisms and upset with each other. But we hold back and don't disclose favorable feelings. What do you think that does to the energy of a relationship? It makes no sense. It's incongruous that we are not comfortable sharing positive feelings, compliments, good stuff, and we're only comfortable sharing criticisms. That's a very macro approach to how can a relationship thrive like that? And that's the kind of stuff that, that I think about is why is it that way? And again, I think that's where you've really 
um, brought something to our attention, it comes from feeling separate. So we even feel competitive to a certain degree, but yes. we love. So if I compliment you all the time, I'll feel vun potentially vulnerable mm -hmm. because I, there's a part of me that's always worried you're better than me. And I don't want to give you that kind of feedback because you might decide, you might discover I'm not worthy of you and leave. So, but that's a thought and a premise that's operating from fear. Here's a different thought or a different thinking. If I can um, genuinely and authentically compliment you, then that actually makes me more lovable, likable to you. You see, it's just the opposite. Love requires vulnerability. When someone is vulnerable, that is lovable. Vulnerable is not weak. Vulnerable is operating without fear and sharing our softer side. It's the whole problem in our culture with self-esteem is we're taught to act strong. Acting strong is acting, which is weak. Embracing your vulnerability is strong because it means I'm not afraid of what you think of me. I'm sharing who I am, which means I'm invested in my own self -worth. So many messages that we, operating messages about the rules for life that don't serve us. They do just the opposite. So for those of you listening in, it is essential to rethink and ask ourselves, not to play by the rule book of life, but to think and become in charge of our own lives and ask, is this authentic? Is this genuine? Am I operating from fear, self-doubt, or insecurity? Am I operating from belief or fact? Am I sharing my feelings? You know, a couple of dozen new questions can completely redirect our lives in a very prosperous way. So I'm aware we're probably just about out of time, but I did want to ask you for those listening, are there any, because what you were just talking about now, vulnerability was just making me think of the work of Brene Brown, who you know, talks about the power of vulnerability and, and our fear of, of shame and things like that. Are there any, is there anyone out there that you like to encourage people to, um, read about their work or things you recommend to people you work with in therapy? Well, this may be surprising, um, but I actually don't read um, much of the work of people in our field. I read outside our field. Again, quantum physics, philosophy. That's where my learning comes from. But I encourage everyone, again, to challenge. In other words, I look at the term self-esteem. And I think as a culture, the way we're taught to gain self-esteem is it isn't really self-esteem. It's praise, recognition, success. And those things are all fine, but when we betray ourselves to achieve that or worry more about what someone else is thinking of us than what we think of us, I call that other esteem because it's not internal. And as a culture, we chase after other esteem, which means we betray ourselves. So my advice would be to look at these words and concepts and ask yourself, 
why do you care more about what you think someone else thinks of you than you think of yourself? Or the concept when people will say, you know, I'm concerned about other people judging me. I say, they're not your judge. They're people with opinions. The only person that can judge you resides in the courthouse, wears the long black robes, to, to take ownership that others can't judge me, they can have an opinion. But if I consider them a judge, I'm doing that, and they don't even know I'm doing it. So it's taking our own authority, inner authority, developing our own inner leadership, and saying I'm responsible for how I feel and how I experience my life. Yes, my parents may have impacted me, my partners may impact me, but ultimately, I exist in a state of pure possibility, and it's up to me. So, before I let you go, can you tell us what you are reading about these days, or what kind of things you're you're working on? So we sure. have. Well, in ter in terms of what I'm working on, I've been working diligently in, in creating a. Um, again, in the age of COVID, I'm creating um, Zoom courses live, participatory interactive courses on everything we're talking about, which I'll be um, sharing um, in just a couple of weeks. Um, because the need for interactivity and new learning is so deeply profound. Um, in terms of what, where my thinking is being generated, um, it comes from a field called transdisciplinarity which is that I don't accept divisions and distinctions because we made them all up. Like a university that has a department of philosophy, a department of sociology, it's tearing down these separate silos of thought and blurring them all and understanding that we created these divisions, thought created them. And if I allow new thinking to remove those divisions, that's exciting and generative for me. So I read philosophy, I read quantum physics. And by the way, I was a C student in science, so let nobody think that this is deep scientific stuff. It's just concepts or principles. And I look at something and I say, wow, if this is true, and that's true from a whole different field, what happens when I put them together? For me, that creates an alchemy, a real generative excitement, and that's so exciting for me. And I encourage everyone to do that. Come out of these containers of thought and belief. And the most powerful words in the universe are what if. Not in a fearful negative way, but what if in a positive way. Those create the defining moments. What if I could do that? What if this is possible and move toward it? That's what brought me here right now. What ifs brought me into this conversation, this field, this meeting with you? What if is a beautiful, beautiful consideration? It, what if without fear? So what if someone wants to do one of these courses? Where can they find information? So go to my website, melschwartz.com. Okay. Um, although they're not listed yet, um, but go there and you can send me an email or my email address is mel at melschwartz.com. On my website, you'll find my TEDx talks, 
a hundred articles I've written, um, 30 podcasts called the possibility podcast, wealth of wealth of information. So just visit, just visit and cherry pick whatever is of interest. Great. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you. This was delightful and, you know, great talking with you, Elizabeth. I know. I just um, I have more questions, but maybe we'll do something when you do the next book. Absolutely. Be happy to talk again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Possibility Podcast with me, Mel Schwartz. To learn more about this topic and related subjects, please be sure to check out The Possibility Principle, my book, at thepossibilityprinciple.com. I always welcome and look forward to your feedback. Please leave a comment at the show notes for this episode at melschwartz.com slash podcast, or simply send me an email at mel at melschwartz.com. You can also use that email address if you'd like to be a caller on a future show and have a topic you'd like me to discuss. If you never want to miss an episode, find The Possibility Principle in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And be sure to hit that subscribe button. You'll get new episodes as soon as they are released. And if you know anyone who might benefit from The Possibility Podcast, please tell them about the show. Thank you for listening. And until next time, have a great day and keep summoning up those new possibilities.